Welcome back to the Multifamily Investing Podcast. This is Charles Dobbins, the founder of the Multifamily Investing Academy and the MultifamilyAttorney.com. And every week we delve into the good, the bad, the ugly, the comic, the heartbreaking stories of multifamily ownership. They will inspire you to do what you've always dreamt of doing. So sit back and enjoy the best training on multifamily investing on the internet today. Enjoy. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, that, that's a great question. It's a great question. Great question. It's a good question. This is a really good question right here. It's a great question, by the way. That's a great question. That's a really good question. Yeah, so that's a that's a great question, Charlie. Great question. You want to... Yeah, that's a great question. You know that, that that's a great question. Good question. Great question. Great question. Yeah, I get that a lot. Hey everybody, this is Charles Dobbins, the founder of the Multifamily Investing Academy and the creator of the Multifamily OS system. And I'm here for this week's podcast and I'm here with Dakota Oral. Dakota, let me see, you're a multifamily real estate investor. You currently have 230 doors solely owned. Okay, now that's something I wanna stress. Uh, and you're currently, well, this one, this bio was written when you were 27. You look to be about 38 now, I think. Uh, or maybe that was a, too good of a trip to Jamaica. Um, now, here's the thing is after being elected as the youngest president of the Salt Lake uh, Real Estate Investors Association, you were appoint, appointed to the Planning and Zoning Commission of your city, and you wrote, rewrote city parking and density codes to promote low-income housing development. And the thing is, you also have done um, multi uh, uh, hotel conversions to multis. And I'll tell you right now, those are, that's really what we're going to focus on here today. Um, uh, so first up, you were appointed, uh, it's not an elected position, uh, to the Planning and Zoning Commission, right? Right, correct. Yeah, I got to, I got appointed to the, uh, I got appointed to the Board of Assessors in my hometown like 30 years ago. And uh, then I did my time and I left the town. I came back and uh, the mayor found out, it was the same mayor, it was on the second go-round uh, 30 years later. And he and he sees that I'm back in town. He calls me up and says, Hey, do you want to be on the, the assessors board again? And I said, Hell to the no. I said, not a chance. Those guys are in the front page and above the above the fold on every newspaper. There's something going on with the assessor's office. And I said, No, put me on the airport commission. Put me on something non-political. I don't want to get involved in any of the politics anymore. So Let's talk about let's talk about hotel conversion first because I want to tie the two of them together and I want to get your take on it. So tell me about your experience with hotel conversions. So you know, 2020 before uh, you know all the money started printing and moratoriums were happening, kind of had a lot of real estate investors spooked. And one thing that we noticed pretty early on is that basically the travel industry just came to a halt. Yeah. And that there were a lot of these hotels out there that were, you know, 30, 40 unit kind of not brand name hotels, smaller mom pop type hotels uh, that basically just came to a grinding halt. We're sitting empty. Um, you know, the financing on a lot of those is, is not favorable. And so, you know, we started realizing we could get really good creative financing on these. We could get them to carry notes for long periods of time at great interest rates uh, if we would just take over the payments. 
And, you know, we thought, well, it's not working as a hotel, but what we do need is affordable housing. And so we started buying specifically those smaller 30 to 40 unit hotels that can be sold and repositioned very easily as multifamily apartment complexes. We started converting them into studio apartments. Excellent. You know, the, the term now is it's a building recycling business is the hotel mm -hmm. conversion. Um, now, you know, we're actually going to be teaching uh, a whole course on hotel conversions. And one of the things that people don't understand, and this is where the, a lot of them fall down on, is the zoning issues regarding hotels. And, and so... So why don't you lay out for us, and I'll add, I'll fill in, uh, you know, uh, as, as we go, the issues regarding zoning of these hotel to apartment conversions. You know, it's no matter which city we've done this in, and we've done this in four cities and four states, so we've, we've kind of been across the board, there's always a little bit of fight with the planning and zoning department. Yeah, yeah. Because the second that you take this from a hotel to an apartment complex, they start wanting parking to be increased. You know, you've got to do fire suppression, which is really more of a building issue. Um, but what's silly about it is it's, especially if you're converting them to studio units, it's the same amount of people living there. Yeah. Okay, but what what changes for the city? And this was, that someone had to explain this to me. It, I said, You've got to be kidding me. And in one city that, that my partner worked in, the city didn't want it because they made more tax money from the tourists coming in to use the hotel than they would have for the people living there on a, on a day to day basis. And that's why they were against allowing the zoning uh, um, you know, uh, changes to go through to turn it into a multifamily. Yeah, I mean, meanwhile, their constituents have to live outside of town on the outskirts and drive in yeah. right, to service these hotels. Right, right, exactly. It's just, it, the, the, sometimes these zoning laws don't make any sense. So we were looking at one, we're actually looking at one right now where the, it, it's a, it's a, a foreclosed hotel, uh, didn't make it through covid couldn't couldn't uh, afford the pips, and which is something we're going to talk about in a moment. Uh, couldn't afford to to, to rebrand. Drop the keys in the desk of the bank. Bank, uh, we're trying to take it over from the bank right now. But the issue is that it's zoned as a hotel, and it's not zoned as a multifamily. I mean, even if it's a two two streets down, it would be fine. And so let me ask you what your strategy would be. And I'll tell you what we're going to do. But what would your strategy be in a situation like that to get to, to uh, get a variance? So I always try to play nice with cities first. Like honey goes a lot further. Yeah. But, you know, the ultimate card that you have in your pocket, specifically with hotel conversions, is you're allowed to have occupancy there that is, you know, you're not allowed to sign a year lease. But you can have month-to-month -month occupancies there. You can have week-to-week -week occupancies there. So, you know, I think what you have to say is like, it's like, look, I'm going to use it in this manner. The, the question is whether you're going to allow me to sign a year lease or not. And if you're going to allow me to sign a year lease and the financing gets better, that means that I can actually put more money into this building and make it nicer. Yeah. So by you telling me that you can't play ball with me, you're basically just telling me that 
my demographic for this is going to be repeat felons and and yeah. sex, sex offenders. offenders exactly yeah and i don't think that you want 60 or 40 sex offenders living right on main street in your city yeah exactly so how do we get a variance for parking how do we you know how do we get a conditional use permit how do we do something like tell me what the real rub is and let's focus on getting that solved and you know not pretending that we're going to have six people living in this 250 square foot you know studio with a yeah. kitchenette yeah exactly uh, i tell you that's exactly what we're going to do is we're already started the the campaign the hospitality campaign to the to the uh, board of aldermen and uh and seeing what we can do towards getting that uh that that uh, the variance for that facility um let's talk you know you mentioned one thing that we never saw coming and it has to do with the building code and i own uh and, I, and i'm one of the investors in a multi a, a hotel to multifamily in uh in kansas city and the building code allows for a certain sized elevator for hotels, but a different sized elevator is required for, for multifamily. And it has to do with, you know, getting a stretcher in there. And, you know, that's what they, the, uh, the fire code is. I could never, when we were built buying this property, did that ever even come across my radar? What do you think? Yeah. I, one thing I'm doing now is, you know, the problem is once you buy the property, you've lost a lot of your leverage with the city. And so now as part of my due diligence, I'm essentially doing something akin to like a site plan review where you get the fire chief and the building chief and the pl senior planner, all that in one room. And I'm basically saying, this is what I want to do, tear it apart, because if you don't like what I'm going to not what I want to do, I'm not going to buy it. Um, and I'm finding that if I'm doing that, I'm having a lot more leverage where I'm able to say, hey, I know you want me to upgrade the, uh, the elevator. Um, and I totally understand why you'd want me to do that. The problem is I've got a $250,000 budget. So, you know, if I do that, I can't allocate it here. What's really more important to you? And what I found is when I pick the problem that I let them deliberate over, I'm getting a lot further than when I own it. And they're just like, you know well pound sand because this is how it's going to be that's interesting that's really cool now where are you finding your deals and what types of properties make the best conversions so for a while i was following travel lodge around really? which is funny because travel lodge had all of these like you know cinder block built hotels from the 1940s uh, and then in those same towns they're starting to basically abandon those structures and build new you know 21st century hotel travel lodges. So I was just coming behind them and, and buying their old hotels that they were, that they were phasing out of. And one thing that I liked about those is one, one thing that you'll find with older hotels is they wired the units together. So a lot of them, they wire, you know, two up, two down, and they're all together, which is okay for a hotel because people aren't bringing in personal computers and, you know, TVs and microwaves and, and stovetops. Right. But when you convert it to a residential use, you basically have breakers flipping everywhere. And what I liked about like Travel Lodge construction, particularly, is how they ran the electrical in between the floors just made it really easy for me to split that out when I was doing my conversions. Oh, that's interesting. So you so, already had 
you know, you were like the guy that goes around and builds uh, new shell stations for shell. And you cookie cutter, you know exactly what's there. You you see these hotel, these travel lodges, you know how they're built. You know exactly what you're going to need. You, and you probably got the uh, the budget, the uh, the rehab budget already figured out per unit. Yeah. And another big thing with hotel conversions, this is the thing that will that will kick you if you don't know it inside and out, is fire suppression is incredibly expensive. Yeah. And you know, you can donate to every city council member, you know, in the city, and you're still not going to get around this fire suppression addition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I've learned is basically the cost of fire suppression will double every store you go up. And so if you're looking at a, you know, a three-story type hotel, you need to know, like, your ROI is going to be significantly lower than a than a two-story hotel, even if you're adding more units, because it's just the sheer cost of the infrastructure. Now you've got to upgrade the city water main, and you've got to pressurize it to bring it up three stories, and that can easily be four hundred thousand dollars on a three hundred on a three-story, you know, hotel conversion. Interesting. Wow. Now, what about uh, you know that's that has to do with some of the the infrastructure. What about the units? Like if, what? Certain name brands, certain lines, certain flags are designed better for hotel conversions to multifamily than others. What do you like? You know, you have to be aware, probably the biggest issue is the actual size of its units, right? Because agency debt is the best way to go. And you can do hotel conversions into agency debt. But if you've got 200 square foot units, it's just not going to fly. Like Fanny's not going to take it. Freddie's not going to take it. Interesting. So I don't know that I care as much about the brand names. I've learned a lot about Travel Lodge. What I care about is the electrical, uh, the ability of the electrical systems to support the conversion, the ability to facilitate the fire suppression, and the size, specifically the size of the units. Because I'm always thinking, what's my exit? Can I afford to hold this? You know, you can go in with seller financing most of the time on these hotel conversions, but a lot of them still might have underlying debt or or they don't, and it's paid free and clear, but they just don't want to wait forever to get their money. So you got to think, where am I going to take this? And that's kind of a niche product, right? You go to a local bank and they're not going to, you know, you might be the first time they're actually taking a look at a project like this. Yeah, yeah. Now, what about reconfiguring the units? You ever tried doing that? I, I've, I've heard, I've seen people try to pitch it one way and I've spoken to successful hotel converters and what their response is. So how do you feel about converting units or reconfiguring units? I've played with this idea a couple of times of basically taking a studio and turning it into a one bedroom or two bedroom apartment. Right. And what I found is it's like a question of how much money do you put in a building trying to make it something it's never going to be? Exactly. It's these are always going to be transient housing. This is this is the lowest income of the low income, the type of person that's going to live in a, in a building like this. And so the name of the game is dignified, functional, affordable. And every dollar you put into that property that that increases the rent, it actually hurts you. The name of the game is increase the rent in multifamily, but in conversions, it's how do I control my expenses instead and keep the rent low? Because what I know is with all utilities included, and we like to put solar on these pro uh, projects, but with all utilities included, I can rent you know a studio hotel room 
with, because I'll put in a mini fridge, a stove plate induction burner, and a sink. And I know that I can rent that with a waiting list at $700 a month, just, just like this. And we'll, and seriously, I think on our very first conversion, we had a waiting list of 112 people um, that were just waiting for units to come open because the problem wasn't space. The problem was price. People on social security income, for example, we were like the last bastion of where these people could lay their heads. Yeah. You know, even section eight is getting outpaced in, in many cities across the, uh, you know, across the U S so really for us, it came down to maybe we're not getting as high of rent as we could get, but we're having literally zero vacancy and that all equates to dollars. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, what about when you buy? Uh, you know, I got to tell you, we, one of our deals was just a home run from day day one. All the units were already renovated. We had no rental budget. Mm -hmm. We purchased them for $39,000 a door for one bedroom units. I yeah. know. Isn't that unbelievable? And, and, you know, we just convert them. We, we, uh, you know, we, we do get the leases on there. And so we really, they're truly multifamily with one year leases and, you know, we're going to re, re, um, uh, refinance it in a year or two and pull all our money out. And that's just how, I mean, are those the types of numbers you've seen in your deals? Absolutely. Because what people miss is it's not easy to run a hotel. Like that's not an automatable yeah. business with yeah. all the cleaning and all the software and the bookings coming and in. Staff and the and the and the, the increase in cost of labor, which is killing hotels right now. Uh that it is. It's you you think you cannot run a hotel at that level, that affordability level. The, that's why you're seeing so many of these come back to the market in, in the form of re, uh, uh, foreclosures. So, so we bought a 42 unit travel lodge, all studio apartments. We bought it for $950,000. I put probably $350,000 into it. These ones weren't renovated. So, you know, just vinyl plank flooring, a 60 inch sink base for mica countertop induction stove burner. Like you get it. Yeah. Probably 350. We sold it after it stabilized about 18 months later for $3 million. Yeah. Somebody who went and got a, a, a Fannie Mae loan on it. Um, and so, you know, you do the math on that. I don't know, 150,000 a month or whatever for it, it pays better than new construction. I mean, it's, yeah. it's crazy, but, but the trick is, you know, and you, I, I feel like you probably know this cause you're trying to tie the two together. Like you're not being paid so much for the renovation and the infrastructure as you are re, you know, reconfiguring the zoning. Yeah. And the, the value comes in. That's where the value of what you're doing comes in because nobody else wants to touch it. And if you know how to do it, you know how to go through that process and you've got a corner on that market, you're the go-to guy. And these places are all over the country and every community wants more housing, needs more housing. And, but it, you know, you, you know, you know, Dakota, you've got to do the numbers for a new developer to go in and build what uh, the housing that is required for that community, they the all the only thing they could do is build class A property that commands this huge huge price, and, and it cuts out everybody else. Hi, my name is Charles Dobbins. I'm the founder of the Multifamily Investing Academy, and for the last ten years, I've been coaching and consulting with multifamily investors 
teaching them the right way to buy apartments and build a successful multifamily business. I have worked with investors who started with me owning zero units to now owning over 6,000 apartments. And there have been many clients who now are in my 1,000 unit club. Just by my understanding of an investor's knowledge of two things, I can tell from the first conversation that I have with that investor whether they are going to be a success or if they won't even get past the first offer. Now, what are those two things? The first thing is knowing that no matter how knowledgeable you are about properties, markets, finance, it's all meaningless if you don't know anything about sales and marketing. And the second thing is that you need systems in your business that work even when you don't. Now, I've developed a new program for multifamily investors that should be your very first sales and marketing system. It automates the process of generating property leads from brokers and owners, as well as keeps you connected with your investors every single month. And then I took it one step further. I decided to give you access to my marketing team that are employed by me, trained by me, and will now work for you. I already have the staff trained and they're ready to execute. And in addition to providing you with trained staff, I'm going to give you the tools I use to automate the system. I'm going to give you access to my custom-designed multifamily CRM software that systematizes your marketing to your investors, owners, and brokers, and connects you with your new employee. And believe me, on this podcast commercial, I'm just scratching the surface of all the features my program provides. So go to www.multifamilyinvestingacademy.com forward slash your marketing system and sign up today. And for being a loyal listener of my podcast, on the checkout page, use discount code podcast, and I will reduce the one-time setup fee by $500. Let's start working together today. And now back to the show. So well, it's not what we need. Class A isn't what we need. We've got, I think the new numbers are like, we have a million units, just shy of a million units that are supposed to come online, like in 2023. Yeah. Uh, and they're all class A, some are class B, nobody's building, you know, class C. Yeah. And that's, that's really where, you know, middle class and just whatever is right below middle class America is right. living these days. You know, so, as I always say, a builder does not build class C. He, he, you just can't go in there and build a flat roof, single pane, uh, chiller boiler system anymore in today's day and age. You know, when they say class C, what they're really talking about is brand new construction that is subsidized in some form or another from the government. And that's 100%. the only way that it can be class C. Yep. yep. Tax credits or, or something else. Exactly. Now, what about that? Do I mean, what types of do we get any type of benefit from the government besides you know, getting in there and kissing their ass to get them to, to you know, make them look like heroes because they brought in more affordable housing because they let us they uh, let us get a, a variance on some zoning rule? You know, that's a key part of the pro, uh, of the plan, by the way, when I go in and I pitch this to cities like. I'm always in the local newspaper the next week, just like sometimes I'm praising them before I even talk to them. I'm like, really, we need to shout out the planning and zoning department because they had the opportunity to throw these walls up and make this difficult. They could have killed this project if they wanted to, but they are committed to affordable housing uh, for, you know, the local residents here. You shout them out by name and then you go have the conversation, right? Yeah, and, yeah, and then you get behind closed doors and everything's like, you might, how dare you say that? I mean, yeah, and you get in front of them like, 
Hello, everyone. Nice to see you all today. Um, you know, it's a lot different, too. Like, you know, the average budget for a city councilman running their campaign in a lot of these towns is like $12,000 or less. Oh, yeah. So if you're donating like $2,000 to your city council member and you're just like, hey, could you just attend this planning and zoning, uh, you know, site plan review with me? Would you do that? And they're like, yeah, 100%. And that's a much different conversation. You know, geez, I, I didn't realize that you were out there buying uh, buying elected officials all over the country, Dakota. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we you know we prefer sponsoring, but exactly. why not? <laughs> you just have to play the game. Like, here's the uh, thing: I had this development project that I wanted to build. It's exactly what you're saying. You know, the land sat there vacant in a good part of the city. Nobody can do anything with it because of these archaic parking laws and these archaic you know zoning laws. I go apply for a variance. No, you can't do it. I apply for undue financial hardship, everything else. No, they won't give it to me. I apply for a conditional use permit. No, can't do it. So I have to go get myself on planning and zoning, rewrite the entire city's parking codes, the entire city's high density codes, and then resign just to get my, you know, just to get my development project done. And I'm like, if you guys can't see the absurdity of this bureaucratic process that you've created, yeah. you know, What's the difference? Like, tell me why a studio apartment needs two and a half parking spaces. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting because I sat down with the with the uh, planning department here in, in my town, Nashua. I was talking to the two guys. That, yeah, you can't do that. But if you wait a year, we're going to rewrite everything and have a new 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 uh, code that you'll be able to go in and use. Okay, so I can't do it now. It has to sit there for a year until you guys get your act together. Yep, that's how it works. It's like, wow, wow. All right, now hold on. Let me talk about um, one particular topic that that I just want to educate people about, and that is the concept of a flagged hotel. How does that impact you? What what, what do you know about it? Tell me what you do differently. It, just to confirm that I understand what you're talking about, you're talking about basically like uh, buying a brand name hotel. Exactly. The one that's still under contract to one of the big the big uh, names. But it's, you know, and then let's talk about the PIP. Uh, you know, if, if, you know, what these guys, what I call equivalent, uh, equivalent to the reserve replacement for uh, hotels. Uh, but boy, it, it, for some of these guys, it's punitive. They just they know they're going to lose their properties because they can't afford to to stay up with the uh, with the requirements of the flag. To be honest, I kind of avoid it specifically yeah. for those yeah. reasons. Uh, so if you're going to do this right off the top, you know that you need a really long due diligence period. I, like you can't go into a situation like that and and actually buy it until you know where the brand is going to land. Because they could charge you breakup fees. I, I mean, they could just make your life hell. And they've got a lot more money to throw at it than you do. Yeah. And they call, you know, every hotel, they kind of call their franchise fee, whatever, something different. But they've got transfer fees. They've got franchise fees. They tell you what you can and can't do. They tell you, you got to go run it as a hotel for so many years after you buy it before you can do the conversion. And you never know. And uh you know, I, I kind of just avoid them. It's it's such a headache. You almost have to come in with, you know, a $40,000 legal budget just to play that game for that one property. Yeah, yeah. All right, so tell me, um, you know, your your background, you started off multifamily. You know what it's like to buy a multifamily property. Give me some ideas of the distinctions between the due diligence process for multifamily and for a hotel conversion. 
You know, multifamily, I can almost look at things and be within 5% of the renovation budget, like every time, you know, yeah. you start to do multifamily, you have the same system, no matter what building you buy, it's the same floor, it's the same paint, it's the same baseboards. Um, you know, you know what it costs to do siding for vinyl and what it costs to do siding for brick. You know, you've got generally, especially after you get bigger, you cross like, you know, the 200 unit mark. And now you've got vendor contracts with pre-negotiated pricing for furnaces and AC condensers. So you really can, you know, I think at a certain point, do more streamlined due diligence with multifamily. Yeah. But the problem is every single hotel conversion needs to be treated treated like a one-off project. You cannot streamline these. Because every hotel, especially a lot of these ones that were built in the 40s and 60s, they did not have streamlined building processes. And so every single one you need to approach basically like you're Sherlock Holmes, like you're an investigator. And a huge part of your success is the attitude of the city that you're doing that conversion in, whether they want to see it or not. Um, And so on the due diligence with hotels, I'm taking longer. It's more bid intensive. I'm collecting a lot of bids um, in due diligence for the actual work. And most of the time I'm asking for a longer due diligence because I basically want some sort of commitment in writing from the city that they're going to cooperate with the rezone before I ever even purchase it. Okay. You know, go ahead. ahead. A big part too is just... um, you know, on the hotels, I'm always looking at the roofs, especially, you know, hard closely, specifically the joists and the trusses. Um, sorry, trusses, not joists, because a lot of these end up staying on one meter, which means utilities become almost your single largest expense. Yeah. And especially with new tax credits coming out for solar, it just really makes sense to put solar on almost every one of these buildings. Because right off the top, you know, cap rates aren't so compressed now, but back then when cap rates were five and a half percent, if you could knock $1,200 a month off your, off your expenses and add it onto your NOI, you know, you were talking hundred K right there pretty easily, right? Yeah. At a, at a five cap, you were saying? Yeah. 1200 a month. Why do I? Yeah. 288,000. Yeah. So it pays for the system. It pays for, you know, most of the fire suppression and it just makes sense. And and that's now you get a 35% tax, you know, tax credit for doing it too. So it really, it just makes sense, but it doesn't make sense if you got to replace that roof in three years and you just put solar on it. Now the solar has yeah. got to come off too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the process. I mean, when I teach multifamily and I teach the due diligence component, there are three phases of due diligence for a multifamily. There's the legal due diligence, the financial due diligence, and the physical due diligence. Right. How would you say, where would you start the due diligence process with the, the, um, the hotel conversion? And do you even begin it before you get the deal under contract? So I'm probably starting on the finance. Because I know that basically, especially right now, I'm not doing any bridge loans. Like I'm not doing any short-term financing, which means before I even sink any time into this project, I want to know whether they're going to carry for seven years or longer. Do I want to be in that loan for seven years? No. But the worst case is I need to be able to afford to hold this project and, you know, the financial 
systems right now are are testing their metal and i don't when you say hold it for seven years you're not talking about seller financing i mean with because i can't imagine you're getting much seller financing on these types of deals it's not like this the self-storage facilities where it's like every other deal has seller financing of some sort when you say carry for seven years you're talking about either a local lender or 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 a gse i'm talking about either or when you get away from those flag hotels and you're dealing with these these smaller like off-brand hotels, I've been really successful. I'm four for four on seller financing, actually. Really? Yeah. Well, and especially there was a there was a little microcosm around COVID where they were just falling behind, anyways. But you know, yeah, I will also farm it out to a broker or to a local bank, and I'll say, here's my plan, here's my track record, here's my portfolio. What can you do? But the very first test is, can I get long-term financing on this day one as it sits? Because if I can't, I absolutely cannot afford to dump a quarter million to a half million dollars into this project, gambling on whether the refinance or the sale is there. You know, seven rate hikes later. Interesting. All right. So kind of give me an example uh, of some of the seller seller financing terms you've you've been able to secure. Sure. So our most recent hotel conversion was in Spearfish, South Dakota, which is right next to Sturgis. Right. Okay. So that's a heavy tourist town. They get more they get a million people there in the course of three months. It's kind of crazy. Right. Um, that being said, Everybody who lives in the, the city is very wealthy, and everybody who works in the city lives outside the city. In, oh, in Spearhead or in Sturgis? Spearfish? In Spearfish, yeah. Okay. Um, and so we bought that one when it was struggling in off-season. Um, and we paid $1.2 million for 31 units. So I don't know. That's, what's that? Like $40,000 a door. Okay. Um. And I put $300,000 down on it. So I carried a, a balance of 900K. It's a seven-year note. No, it's a 10-year note. It's a 10-year note, 4.5% interest on a 30-year AM. So my payment on that with taxes, because tax, taxes are escrowed, is about 5,100 a month. Okay. And this is all seller financing, no bank involved. No bank involved. Interesting. And you have a first position? Yes. Yeah. Okay. They, had it, they had it free and clear. Okay. Wow. Good for you. But the second conversation with the bank, though, is at the same time, you can be talking to a local bank and say, hey, like, let's talk hypothetically right now. Let's say, I know this sounds crazy, but let's say I do pull it off and convert it and it's doing $22,000 a month on all year long leases. And I get the seller to agree, instead of paying off the rest of the $900,000, i am going to pay off $700,000 early because he doesn't want to wait 10 years to get his money. And he's going to agree to carry back that $200,000 in second position and subordinate it to you. Is there an exit here? And, and you would be surprised how often the answer is yes. And oh, this I... guy's happy. He doesn't want to wait 10 years. Right. And, this, and the bank's thinking, man, you just did this. Now it's worth, if it's doing $22,000 a month, it's worth $2.5 million. Plus, I'm going to get an additional two hundred dollars subordinated to me in second. Now my LTV is 45%. And now instead of getting market interest rates at, you know, seven and a half percent, I'm negotiating, you know, I'm getting them to cut their margin of three, 3% down to one and a half percent, nixing my prepay, getting them to push up my amortization, taking the terms in other places. 
And that's the real value. Everybody sees forcing appreciation and they only see the money. They don't see the bargaining and the leverage. And that's the value. Okay, hold on. Let's go through this a little bit more. Tell me more about the value. Like, So when you sit down and you look at these types of deals, you are building the whole entire deal structure right to the year 10. You're figuring out exactly how to make this thing work for you over the next 10 years. And and you're you're able to do this because of the market that you're in. Meaning you're you're like one of the few people who's in this this type of business. If you right. were doing this on a multifamily thing, you're just in there with everybody else. They're all making the same offers you are, you know, the you know It's not happening. It's not happening. Right. But because you are the creative one showing up to the table to solve a problem for the owner that nobody else knows how to do, you're able to get very, very creative and there's really no competition for you. I, I would say there is almost no competition for me, period. I, I, I can tell people about this, but most people, I think the barrier to entry on this is just that it requires a decent amount of capital. Because you've got to have your down payment. And then because it is speculative, unless you are willing to take a bridge, most of the time you're going to fund the reno too. And so I think that's a barrier of entry. Interesting. You know, I, I, I'm going to go one step further on you and say knowledge is a barrier to entry. And, you know, most people, when they hear they got to go for a variance, they got to go before the, the planning board, they'll say, I, I'm, not, I'm just going to buy a multifamily. You know, and that scares enough people away that it really puts the, you know, puts a, a mini barrier to entry. But uh, for some people, it's overcomable. It's it's un, not overcomable. I think people overthink it. You know, like city workers are just people. You yeah. go in with cookies and be nice and, and tell them, holy cow, I was driving through your city and it's it's so clean. It's so beautiful. I can see like, man, I've been in so many cities and they don't have half of this stuff together like you guys do. You guys do a really great job. It's making yeah. me want to invest here. Like what what are your needs? Like you have a, that approach and it's like it's completely different because their initial initial, they just want to say no to things. You know, let me tell you, I, I one time owned a property in Texas and it was so bad that uh, even Section 8 wouldn't wouldn't allow um, uh, me to rent their units. And uh, uh, I used to bring in donuts every week and they ate them, but they never never gave me a chance. God, do I hate those people. So, yeah, but I know what you mean. You got to suck up. You got to play the game. Um, hey, before we, we before we close, I got to know, is that a real Back, background or is that one of those fake backdrops oh, you, this you, is my house okay you really have a black cat that keeps walking by yes okay yeah, that's my cat panther okay i thought that might have been like one of those you know things where they just always have like some animal so it never looks like a real a real backdrop i mean it looks like a real backdrop but it's just a fake animal it goes back and forth so that's really yours so well that just makes me flattered that you think my house is a backdrop it is, yeah, I know. Well, that's a, one of my clients always shows up when the calls, and I thought he lived in the most magnificent uh, house. I thought, wow, that's great. And then he did one of these things where he like pushed back on the screen and he disappeared. And I realized, son of a gun, it's a fake backdrop. He doesn't live in that house. Ah, here I am thinking he was uh, he was killing it. Um, okay, final question, and this is probably the most the uh, most important question. Tell me about some of your failures 
Man, I've had a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, to be honest, it's like my most overarching failure is just being in business is is a constant battle with ego. I've never lost money except for when I I thought I was starting to get so good that I couldn't lose money. Wow. And so I think the most important decision an entrepreneur ever makes is who he's going to allow into his ear and who he's going to allow to mentor him. And then the second most important decision he makes is to just shut up and listen. Yeah. Yeah. So and true. so I didn't wake up one day and know how to convert hotels, right? Like I've never had an original thought in my head. I'm not, it's it's funny. People say it's creative. I'm really not that creative. I, I just found some really great mentors in my life who point me in directions. And even when I disagree with them, I just kind of do it and ask why later. Yeah. And that's paid dividends. I mean, people have 50 years of business knowledge in their head. You know, why wouldn't you harness that? Yeah. You know, I have one of my clients, he's started with me with zero units. He's up to 6,000 apartment units now. And he's Charlie, the best advice you, you've ever given me over the years has been the, the deals not to do. And uh, yeah, that's sometimes, sometimes the truth. So, all right. Hey, Dakota, how can people track you down if they want to want to pick your brain and want to want to find out what you're up to? Uh, you know what? If they just want to add me on Facebook, Dakota Worrell, shoot me a message. Uh, or they can shoot me an email, um, dakota.worrell at dwinvestors.com. I'm always helping helping people get started, and I, I don't really charge anything. I just, as time allows. Yeah. But I really, really appreciate you having me on the podcast and giving me the opportunity to be here. Thank you. Oh, this was fun. This is fun. You, I learned a lot. I, I love what you're doing. We're doing more and more of it because that's where the opportunity is. Uh, that's where the, um, you know, that's it. you got to keep just like anything else. You got to get out there and, and pound the pavement and look for the deals. But like you said, you know, the competition is is negligible uh, when you start getting into this world. And that's fine by me. So, all right, Dakota, thanks so much for being on the show. And I, I will have to catch up again soon. Thanks, Charles. Have a good day. Take care. You too. You've reached the end of another episode of the best multifamily investing podcast ever. For free resources and materials, head on over to www.multifamilyinvestingacademy.com. And if you love the Multifamily Investing Academy podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate us, and give us a review on iTunes. And until next time, this is Charles Dobbins, the Multifamily Attorney, signing off.